Thank you again for your word and its challenge and its encouragement, and we pray that you would teach us by it the things that you want us to know, the things you want us to be, and the things you want us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was growing up, it was the era of VHS. Videotapes was the way that you watched movies. This is before Netflix. This is before the iTunes store. This is before Blu-ray and DVDs. It was the magical time of VHS. Who here remembers VHS? Loud and proud, hand in the air, wonderful. Uh, Who has never seen a VHS before? Yeah, just a very small handful of people. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm proud or ashamed of this, but I don't own a single VHS in my house. I, I grew up with them, but by the time that I got married and moved out, well, DVDs were in, and so that was the era. Uh, but the thing about VHS is it worked on magnetic tape, uh, reel-to-reel, which is very easily damaged. Anyone who's watched VHS knows that that's the case. Uh, it can get chewed up by the tape player. And so if you had an old movie, maybe this is giving you some nostalgia right now, If you had an old movie that you watched over and over again, sometimes the tape would just die. And it would go totally wobbly and sometimes just fuzz out completely. And when I was really little, like kind of three or four years old, this was the cartoon movie that I loved. The little engine that could. You can imagine cute little me watching that. Uh, And I loved this movie so much, I watched it over and over again, so eventually the tape... Uh, you get about 15 minutes in, and then it would start going wobbly, and then it'd get worse, and then pfft, it would just fuzz out altogether. And, but I loved it so much that I just kept trying to watch it, and every time I would just hope and pray that this time it would work, and it never did. It died every time. The other thing about VHS is you had to fast forward and rewind all the time and it wasn't just like skipping around quickly. So you kind of had to wait and you had this really awful noise that the machine made. Uh, This was the time, the era of VHS. Um, Well, in our chapter today, it's a little bit like VHS because we keep having to rewind and fast forward all all around the place. The story jumps around in time. Maybe you found that or maybe you're a bit confused as we read it. Um, But that's what we kind of see happening in 2 Kings 13 tonight. But first, let's remember last week, if this was VHS, we would rewind back to last week, 2 Kings 11 and 12. And if you remember, that's where we focused on the kingdom of Judah, the south kingdom of God's people. And we saw the evil queen, Athaliah, who murdered her own family to be queen. And we saw the faithful priest, Jehoiada, and his wife. Do you remember his name? That was Phil's her name, sorry. Uh, do you remember? Jehosheba, that was Phil's challenge, to remember that name. Uh, I had to look down to remember. Jehosheba <laughs> uh, protected baby King Joash, and they made him king, and they saved the family line of David. Uh, but now this week, we move away from Judah and back to Israel again, and that's where we were two weeks ago, the north kingdom of Israel. So if we rewind two weeks ago, There, that's when we were last in Israel, and we saw Jehu the purger, the guy who went on a literal bloody rampage and wiped out all of King Ahab's family and all the idolatry that their family had put into place. He put an end to them and their Baal worship. And so we come back to Israel this week, and the question is, well, what will happen now? Jehu has done his bloody work of wiping out the house of Ahab, Will Israel come back to God now? Will the kings of Israel worship him now 
or will history repeat itself? Well, hopefully in two kings by now, you can guess the answer. So come with me. Let's look at this chapter for today. Uh, We only read out part of the chapter before. We're going to look just briefly now at the first part, verses 1 to 13. So we're fast-forwarding now to the present. Like We're present in the story now, uh, and we're back in Israel, the North Kingdom. And we get two more kings, King Jehoahaz of Israel and King Jehoash. The confusing names don't stop, by the way. They just keep coming. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to spend long on these two kings, and the author doesn't spend very long, just 13 verses on these two kings. Uh, but remember the question, now that Ahab's house is gone... Will they turn back to Yahweh? How will these kings go? Again, we shouldn't be surprised by the answer. Look at 2 Kings 13, verse 1, halfway through. It says, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria, the capital, and reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So if we rewind 100 years, the first king of of the north of Israel was Jeroboam. He set up two golden calves, statues for people to go and worship at and sacrifice to. God had expressly forbidden that. So fast forward 100 years, and now nothing has changed. Jehoahaz, he does the same thing as all the other kings before him, and he just keeps leading Israel to break the first two commandments. Okay, what about the next king? King Jehoash. Fast forward a little bit more. Jehoahaz, he dies. And then look down at verse 10, halfway through. Is there any hope here? It says, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. But he walked in them. Sadly, no surprises there. And so it fast forwards then to his death. Verse 13, Jehoahash dies and his son takes the throne after him. That's the story of those two kings in just a few verses. And it's awful, isn't it? Because just think about it for a second. God's, God's fierce anger has just been poured out on all the house of Ahab, all of the idolatry They've seen loud and clear what happens to those who turn against the one true God, who turn against the God of Israel. And they've seen, yet again, another chance for them to repent and come back to him. He offers them life again instead of death, but what do they choose? They still treat God with contempt. See, this new era is not much better than the last. Sure, they, they might not be as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, uh, killing God's prophets and bowing down to Baal, but they still bow down to these statues, claiming to worship God, but not doing it anywhere near the way that he had commanded them to do it. They broke the second commandment, do not make an image, an idol. And then there's also a little bit of Asherah worship happening as well, Asherah the false god. And so they're breaking the first command as well, worship the Lord only. So in their best moments, Israel at this point, their faith is lukewarm. Claiming to worship Yahweh, but ignoring his ways. And these two kings, their very best, at their very best, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, at their very best, they are half-hearted towards God. The one who made them, the one who loved them. 
And, so, and then at their worst, they just ignore him completely and go after other gods or serve themselves. And we actually see it a little bit here in the story of Jehoahaz. We get a little bit more detail. We won't go into depth here. But verse 4, we see, just really quickly, uh, Israel is in trouble. And then the king, he seeks God's favor, and God, in his mercy, saves them. Saves them from the nation of Aram. But then verse 6, how does Jehoahaz respond? He just keeps living exactly the way he was living before. And so it begs the question, how long? How long will God be patient with these people while they treat him like this? Doesn't it start to make us think about ourselves? See, am I worshipping the true and living God? Have I turned from idols, from false gods, and the things that I might worship, the things that I'm tempted by, and am I wholehearted in my worship of the one true God? Or have I let idolatry creep back into my heart? Has greed or family or my work or relaxation started taking the first place in my heart and competing with God who made me, who sent his son to redeem me, who promises me joy in eternal life? Is my faith like these kings? Lukewarm, half-hearted. See, we shouldn't be too quick to judge Jehoahaz and Jehoash, as awful as they are, without working on our own hearts first. But more on that later. Because next we get the part that we read out just before. And it's actually a really sad story. Because we reach the end of an era. We reach the death of Elisha. The prophet, the man of God. We've learned so much about him over the last seven weeks, I counted. And we've seen him perform miracle after miracle and do mighty things for God. Today we get his final deathbed prophecy. So come with me, look from verse 14. And at this point, the story actually rewinds because this happens during the reign of Jehoash, that second king that we just saw. So we're going to spend some good time looking at this, our reading from before, and it actually starts looking kind of bad and kind of good. So look at verse 14. He says, When Elisha became sick with the illness that he died from, Jehoash, king of Israel, went down and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. See, Elisha, the man of God, he's on his deathbed. That's the bad start to the story. This is really the end of an era. Because Elisha, he's been the man of God. He's been the head prophet in Israel for about 60 years. For 60 years, we've seen Elisha's miracles one after another. We've seen Elisha counsel the kings of Israel. We've seen him put a stop to Israel's enemies. And after Elijah's 24 years of ministry, well, Elisha took up that mantle then for six decades. It's the end of an era of these two amazing men. And yes, after this, God continues to raise up prophets who speak his word. But Elijah's mantle, his commission, doesn't pass on to anyone else after Elisha. And so this is a deeply sad day in the nation of Israel. And it seems that the king knows this. This is the good start to the story. It seems that the king, at least at this time, he had some faith, he had some respect for the man of God. What does he do? He visits him. He weeps over him and he calls him father, a term of respect. And he cries out with a lament about the horsemen and chariots of Israel. What, is, what he means is, Elisha, 
You have been Israel's defense. The nation of Aram, they keep coming against us, and they only flee when you say they will. And they only flee when you, when we do what you say. So what's going to happen to us when you're gone, Elisha? How will, the, how will God be with us and with our armies if the man of God is not here anymore? How will we be protected from the nations around us? And then it's this, it's this worry of King Jehoash that makes Elisha give this final prophecy. Jehoash, he's worried about their enemies, and so Elisha, he responds with this weird, acted-out, symbolic prophecy. Uh, though we should be kind of used to this, thing by now, this kind of thing by now with Elisha. So what happens? Look at verse 15. Uh, Elisha gives instructions, and the king does exactly what he says. Elisha says, grab a bow and arrows, get, get your Robin Hood on. Uh, and he puts his hands on, on the king's hands and, as if to, to show he's blessing him or giving him some kind of task. And then verse 17, he says, Elisha says, okay, open the window and shoot an arrow into the ground outside. We're not going to do this here because we've got neighbors just over there. Uh, and then look at halfway through verse 17. Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory Yes, the arrow of victory over Aram. You are to strike down the Arameans in Aphek until you have put an end to them. This acted out prophecy is an answer to the king's worry. This is a word from the Lord. Jehoash, I will give you victory over Aram. You are to strike them down. This is God again being gracious to his people and offering them protection. But because the king is following all of Elisha's instructions, as he acts this prophecy out, it's as if God is saying again, but worship me, Jehoash. Turn back to me, listen to my voice, do as I say, and it will go well with you. But notice that Elisha doesn't say, you will strike them down. This is really, really important. He doesn't say, you will strike them down, Jehoash. No, he says, You are to strike them down. Jehoash, this is your mission. This is my command, God says through Elisha. Trust me and do as I say. And I will bless you. You will have the victory. And then the story gets even weirder. Look at the instructions in verse 18. Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, shoot out the window again. And so he struck the ground three times and stopped. But then Elisha was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you had put an end to them. But now you will only strike down Aram three times. And Elisha died and was buried. It's weird, isn't it? And when I first read it, I was like, Elisha, you sound a bit harsh. Like, how was, how was Jehoash to know how many times he was meant to shoot into the ground? But if you read it again slowly, there's an important word that comes up twice. Strike. Look at verse 17 again. You, Jehoash, are to strike down the Arameans. And then verse 18, same word again. Elisha said to the king, strike the ground. So Elisha is saying, I've just told you, you are going to go and strike down Aram. Now show me that you understand. Act out what you're about to do before me. Follow the Lord and his word and take action. 
See, Jehoash, he would have known exactly what Elisha was asking him to do. And so Jehoash, he should have shot every arrow he had. Bang, 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 bang. But he doesn't. His response is half-hearted. His faith is lukewarm. He doesn't trust the word of the Lord. He's just like his father Jehoahaz and all the kings before him. He's shown the mercy of God, but he doesn't respond to it. And so what will happen? Well, instead of putting an end to Aram, their worst enemy, he keeps coming at them. Instead, they will only win three times. A half victory for his half-hearted faith. And so then, unlike Elijah, who was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, uh, Elisha dies and is buried just like any other man. But his word, this final prophecy, still hangs over Israel and hangs over the king. Or is it Elisha's final prophecy? Because now we get kind of an interruption and we get the, probably the weirdest story in all of two kings and all maybe a lot of the Old Testament. Now that Elisha is dead and buried, the author, he has one more story, one more miracle of Elisha to show us. So we fast forward many, many years. Uh, Hopefully the VHS tape won't wear out by now. Uh, Elisha's body has decayed and now it's just his bones left. So look at verse 21. One day the Israelites, they're holding a funeral, they're about to bury a man, and then all of a sudden some enemies come over the hill to attack them, to raid their village. And so what do they do? Well, they've got nothing else that they can do. The time is very short. So they throw the man's body into the nearest tomb, and it just so happens to be Elisha's tomb. And so the man's body flies through the air, bang, lands on top of Elisha's bones, and then he wakes up, and he stands up, and he's alive again. Elisha does one more miracle from the grave. Now, why does this happen? Why this post-mortem miracle? Well, it shows us again, doesn't it? One more time, one final time, Elisha is the man of God. God was with his prophet. Even in his death, he is giving life to Israel. God was at work so powerfully through him that even contact with his bones could bring others back to life. I don't know about you, But it makes me think of the one, maybe the one other parallel of this there is in the whole Bible. See, when was a dead man, a man who dies, able to bring others back to life? In Matthew's Gospel, it tells us that when Jesus died, many tombs cracked open and the bodies of righteous men came out alive and appeared to many people. They went for a stroll and showed that Jesus had won the victory over death and shown that God will one day restore all things and give life to his people. That's what we see here with Elisha. Uh, Yet another sign, another symbol, God is with and for his people. He will restore them. He will give them life if they would but repent and believe. And in fact, while we are thinking of Jesus and, and kind of comparing him with Elisha, It's worth doing that at kind of the end of his era, the end of his life, thinking back at his life and going, well, how how are Elisha and Jesus similar? Because it's not just their miracles. Both Jesus and Elisha do many amazing miracles. But just think for a moment about Elisha's faithfulness to the word of the Lord. And then think about Jesus' humble submission to every word from his father. 
Well, think about Elisha as he stood his ground before kings who wanted to kill him. And think about Jesus who stood before the Jewish leaders, silent but firm in his conviction. Or think of Elisha's boldness to speak the truth, no matter how unpopular it was. And think of Jesus who spoke in countercultural ways, no matter what the cost. The cost was his life. Or think of Elisha's unshakable confidence and trust in God to the end. And then think of Jesus, who did the exact same thing. See, the death of Elisha is truly an end of an era in the Old Testament. And he challenges us by his faithful life to live out all of our lives like him for the praise and glory of Yahweh, the one true God. And then he wonderfully points us forward to the era of our Lord Jesus. But now back to the story. Because Elisha's bones, his life-giving bones, they're not just a miracle for the sake of a miracle. No, they're prophetic. This is one extra, one final prophecy from Elisha. God still offers his people life. He still shows them grace despite their rebellion against him. He still calls them to repent and come back to him and live And that's really what we see at the very end of the chapter, the final part that we're looking at. The kings of Aram and God's gracious word. So again, the story rewinds again. It just keeps jumping around. It rewinds back to the first king of our chapter, Jehoahaz. And it says, look at verse 22. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, just as God said he would, as punishment for their sin. But listen to this. The Lord was gracious to them, Israel, had compassion on them and turned toward them. Why? Because of his gracious word, because of his covenant, his promises with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was not willing to destroy them. Even now he has not banished them from his presence. The Lord was gracious because of his covenant. His gracious word. He doesn't allow the nation of Aram to wipe them out. So then, as we fast forward the story one last time, we fast forward to our second king, Jehoahash, the one who received Elisha's final deathbed prophecy. And what did Elisha say? Because of your lukewarm faith, you will strike down Aram three times. So what happens? Well, Jehoahaz, he goes to fight against Aram and the next king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, and then look at verse 25, right at the very end. Jehoahash defeated Ben-Hadad how many times? Three times. And recovered the cities of Israel. Exactly as Elisha said. God fulfills his gracious word. And as we draw the whole chapter together now, this is really the big thing The main thing this chapter is showing us. God's gracious word never fails. Again, 2 Kings shows us God's grace and compassion, his faithfulness to his promises, his promises to his people. You see, sometimes we struggle and we wonder, how can God do some of these things to his people? How can he let Jehu loose like this? How can he judge and punish them so severely? But that's actually the wrong question. We should be asking, how can God's people do this to him? And how can God continue to be so gracious to them when that's how they treat him all the time? 
spurning his love, ignoring his word, at at best half-hearted and lukewarm faith, at worst turning away from him entirely to other gods. See, if we ever think God is being harsh with his people in the Old Testament, it's because we don't understand sin. Phil said it last week, we underestimate sin. But even still, even though they treat him this way, even though we can treat him this way, he still chooses to be gracious. It's, it's who he is. It's who he has said he will be, and he will keep his covenant. He will keep his gracious word, his faithful promises, no matter what. His word never fails, and he never fails to keep it. And so at this point, at, the, at this point of two kings, despite their sin, despite their growing line of evil kings, he doesn't wipe them out. He won't destroy them. Though they deserve it, his compassion is stirred. He hasn't banished them from his presence, it says. He hasn't removed them from his land. He still shows grace to his rebellious people. He still calls them to repent and come back to him and live. And isn't that good news for us? That's the first thing that the chapter shows us. God's gracious word never fails. And it gives us all the more reason to trust his gracious promises to us in Christ. But the second thing it shows us, uh, or the warning it gives us, is about the lukewarm faith of these two kings. See, this is written so that we wouldn't have the half-hearted faith of King Jehoahaz and King Jehoash. That we wouldn't be blasé about God's holiness. That we wouldn't be apathetic towards his commands. That we wouldn't take his grace for granted. Jesus himself speaks to us. He speaks to Christians in a very similar way in Revelation chapter 3. He gives this powerful warning. Have a look on the screens. This is after Jesus is risen and ascended. And he sends a message to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works. I've seen your life. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. See, Jesus doesn't want lukewarm faith. He doesn't want half our hearts. He doesn't want one foot in his kingdom and then the other foot in the world. He doesn't want those who say they believe in him but then just look like everyone else every other day of the week in the world. No, he wants genuine faith. He wants a fire in our bellies for him. He wants his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. He wants all of our lives joyfully lived for him and his gospel and his glory. And two kings and Jesus himself gives us that challenge if we find that we have lukewarm faith. And so it's worth asking, what do we do? What do we do if we think about our lives and we realize, actually, my faith is lukewarm? What do we do if we discover we are half-hearted about Jesus? First, repent. Admit your lukewarmness. Be honest about it and turn away from it. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in Revelation 3. He says, you've been lukewarm. I want to spit you out, but verse 19 As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. 
Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. See, he loves us. He longs for fellowship with us. And so he says what's best for us. Repent. Turn back to him and live. Open the door and let him in. And he just keeps knocking. And he stands ready to forgive and show his grace. Open the door. First, repent. Second, look to Jesus. Because Jesus has fiery, hot faith. Just think of the examples we see in the New Testament. Think of Jesus when he says, I do the will of my Father in heaven. Everything I do is to please him. Or think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane just before uh, he went to the cross. He said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Well, think of Philippians 2, where Jesus humbled himself and obeyed with his whole heart, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners, so that you won't grow, grow weary and give up. So number one, repent. Two, look to Jesus. And third, ask for help. You see, what if you feel weak? What if you feel stuck in lukewarm faith and you can't get out of it? Ask your brothers and sisters for help. That's why God gave them to you. (laughs) Just say it as it is. I need help with my lukewarm faith. And ask Jesus for help. Do Do you think he doesn't want to help you to have faith in him? To have a whole heart for his glory? To help you with this. Cry out to him like the man in Mark chapter 9. Say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Grow me, Lord Jesus, in faith. Grow me in zeal by your spirit in me. Repent, look to Jesus, and ask for his help. And serve the Lord who loves you with the zeal that he gives. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you. Uh, for the warning and, and challenge we see in these chapters of two kings and in the words of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would set our hearts on fire for you and your glory, that you would help us not to be those who are lukewarm and half-hearted, but who joyfully take up our cross and follow Jesus. Forgive us of those times when we are lukewarm towards you. And please help us to know the forgiveness you show us in Christ and the help that we have in your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.